Good morning, church. Good to be with you all this morning. My name is Doug. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, please open it up to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the seat in front of you, and you can find this passage on page 80 of those Bibles. Page 80. You might notice we're finding ourselves today at the end of the book of Exodus, and what a summer it's been trekking through these glorious 40 chapters. As as I thought about the end of Exodus, I thought about the end of stories generally. And I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of the best stories end with a handful of famous words, and they all lived happily ever after. Thank you uh, for those of you, the 20% of you that participated in that. Uh, They all lived happily ever after. And I don't know if you've noticed, but, but one of the most important words in that phrase is they. They all lived happily ever after. Because happily ever after is usually directly tied to a relationship. So you think about Cinderella. She marries the prince and they live happily ever after. You think about finding Nemo. Nemo gets back with his dad and they all lived happily ever after. You think about you've got mail. Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan get together and they all lived happily ever after, right? Uh, so, so some of the best stories end with happily ever after. And one of the most important words in that is they, because our happily ever after is usually tied to a relationship. And that's good news for some of us here today, but for others, that's really hard news to hear. Because when we think about the relationships that we've had in this life, we think about a lot of brokenness and a lot of loneliness. And you might be thinking today, there's absolutely no way that my story could end with a happily ever after. And and if you're feeling that way today, there's good news for you in the book of Exodus. Today we're going to find the book of Exodus' conclusion, which is a very happily ever after, because God is with his people forever. And that is the plan, not just for the story of Exodus, but for the story of the entire universe, for God in his glory to dwell with his people forever. And that's the story, the Exodus story, the Exodus happily ever after that God is inviting you into today. And so as we study the book of Exodus, this final chapter, uh, that's what I want you to see. I want you to see the happily ever after that we have to look forward to, that God saves a people to dwell with him forever. That's the main idea I want you to drive home today, that I want you to take home with you. God saves a people to dwell with him forever. And to unpack that phrase, we're going to do something different than we usually do. So typically, during this time, we look at one passage of Scripture. We really dive into it. We think about what it means, how it applies to our lives, how it should change the way that we think and feel and act. And we are going to do that today for Exodus 40. But first, we're going to take a step back, and at the end of our journey through the book of Exodus, I want us to look back over the first 39 chapters and see all of the astounding ways that our God has been faithful to save a people to dwell with him forever. So I'm going to read the the end of Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38, then we're going to pray 
And then we are going to go on a whirlwind trip through the book of Exodus to see where our God has taken us thus far. How we got to this astounding conclusion where God will dwell with his people forever. Uh, So Exodus 40, starting in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Let's pray together. God, this is your holy word and it is powerful and it is beautiful and it is glorious. God, would you enable us to be amazed at your wonder and your grace today that you have saved a people to dwell with you forever. Lord, would you lift up your son? Would you cause your spirit to blow through here to call sinners home to you? to enter into that happily ever after that that you have promised for your people that we will dwell with you forever. And would you help us to fix all of our eyes on that day? Would you cause us to discipline ourselves to look forward to that day more than any other day? God, we thank you that you have purchased joy for us at the expense of your son's blood. And we pray that we would believe that and treasure that and, and, and proclaim that word today and throughout this week. It's for your name we pray. Amen. God saves a people to dwell with him forever. First, God saves a people. God is graciously working to save a people for himself from sin and suffering. That's the story that we've seen unfold throughout the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible, flip back to the beginning of the book of Exodus. We're going to go pretty quick here because there's 39 extra chapters to cover. But follow along if you can. And think about how throughout this summer, as we've studied the book of Exodus, we've seen this astounding story of God graciously working to save a people from both their sin and their suffering. So in Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh was trying to kill the Israelite son, but God had a plan to save. He delivered the children through brave women. In Exodus chapters 1 through 4, Israel was enslaved in Egypt, but God had a plan to save. He raised up Moses as a deliverer. In Exodus 5 through 13, Pharaoh and the leaders of Egypt refused to let the Israelites go as God had called them, but God had a plan to save. He sent ten plagues to show his power, to judge Pharaoh and Egypt and their so-called gods and bring his people out of slavery into freedom. In Exodus 12 through 13, those plagues reach a climax as the firstborn son in every household had to die, including the Israelites, because their households too were stained with sin. But God had a plan to save. He, He gave them the Passover, where a lamb was slaughtered in the place of the firstborn. 
firstborn son. And the blood of that lamb was spread over their doorposts. So when God's warrior death angel passed over all the houses to kill the firstborn son, he saw the blood and passed over. God had a plan to save. He spared his people from sin and suffering by the blood of the lamb. In Exodus 14 and 15, Israel finally gets out of Egypt and then they find themselves surrounded by Pharaoh behind them, the Red Sea in front of them. They don't know where to go. Everything is dire. The circumstances are bleak, but God had a plan to save. And he literally parted the Red Seas and the Israelites walked through on dry ground. God had a plan to save in Exodus 16 to 17, finally free from slavery, everything's great, right? Well, Israel is slapped with dire suffering. They're, they find themselves without food and water in the wilderness, but God had a plan to save. And he gave them miraculous bread from heaven, quail that came out of seemingly nowhere, and water that came out of a rock. The Israelites were suffering, but God had a plan to save. In Exodus 18, Moses was overwhelmed with the needs of the people and didn't have time to lead all of them as they needed. But God had a plan to save. He raised up a plurality of leaders to help Moses take care of the people. In Exodus 19 to 23, Israel didn't know how to follow God. They didn't know how to live like his people, but God had a plan to save. He gave them his law to lead them to life, to lead them to bear his image and show his glory to the nations. In Exodus 24 to 31 and 35 to 40, Israel was all alone in the wilderness, but God had a plan to save. He instructed them to build a tabernacle, a tent of meeting where he himself would dwell with them. And in Exodus 32 to 34, as we've seen over the last few weeks, Israel broke the covenant and worshipped a golden calf, but God had a plan to save. He spared them through Moses' intercession, and he purified them, and he revealed his glory to them. God had a plan to save. That's what we've seen over the last few weeks as we've blazed through the book of Exodus. We've seen that our glorious, gracious God has a plan to save. And as we saw last week, seemingly all of Exodus is coming to this point in Exodus 34 where God reveals himself to the Israelites. And he explains why he's been doing this saving. And he says that it's because of who he is. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God is saving a people from sin and suffering because that's just who he is. Of course God would save. That's what he does. It makes just as much sense for God to save as it does for me to breathe because that's who God is. And unlike me, my breath will one day stop, but God's saving 
power will never come to an end. His mercies are new every morning. He will never change. He will never give up on you. He will never run out of grace to show his people. A lot of people like to think that there was some sort of change in God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, you see a God of judgment and wrath and fury. And in the New Testament, Jesus comes and he's got long flowing hair and he's beautiful and he pets animals and loves children. No, 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 no. There was no change in God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God has always been a God who saves. He has always been a God who is kind and he always will be. And know here that he saves his people from sin and suffering. So we've seen that throughout the book of Exodus, right? He's not just giving them a one-sided salvation where he brings them out of slavery and he's like, all right, guys, good luck from here. See you on the flip side. No, he saves them, brings them out of slavery, and then he invests in them. And he's with them and even makes a plan to dwell with them, as we'll see in a few moments. But on the other side, he doesn't just look down at them in their slavery and be like, oh, man, that's kind of lame. But here's my law. You could, like, live like me, and that would be maybe cool. Uh, no, he saves them from their sin and from their suffering. And even when they rebel against him, even when he has every reason to smite them off the face of the earth, he saves his people from their sin because he's glorious and gracious and kind. God saves his people from sin and suffering. And it's exactly how he works in our lives. God wants to work in your life to save you from sin and suffering. The story of Exodus finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true and better Moses. Moses led a people out of slavery, out of Egypt, but he couldn't lead the Egypt out of Israel. They still lived like the nations that were around them instead of living like the holy God who had saved them. But when Jesus saves a people for himself, he purifies us. He's invested in your life. He's not giving you a one-sided salvation. He's not going to bring you up to a point and then leave the rest up to you. Jesus is in it for the long haul to save a people from sin and suffering. Galatians chapter 5 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Christ died to set you free from sin. Sin doesn't control you anymore. When the Israelites were in Egypt, they had to make bricks. That was their primary labor. And it was grueling, tedious work. And a Christian living in sin is like an Israelite in the wilderness eating manna off the ground that God's graciously provided and worrying about how he's going to make his brick quota today. No, he doesn't have to make bricks anymore. He's not enslaved to Egypt anymore. He doesn't have to make those bricks anymore. God has saved him from slavery. And a Christian living in sin is just as foolish. God saved you from that. You don't have to live that way anymore. He's going to help you. You don't have to sin any 
more because God has set you free. So don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Christ is the true and better Moses. He's also the true and better Passover lamb. Jesus Christ lived a perfect, sinless life. And the Passover lamb was pure and spotless and without physical blemish. And Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay the penalty for my sins and your sins, for the sins of any who would trust in him. And the Passover lamb was slaughtered in the place of the firstborn son. And Jesus Christ, unlike the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb was dead, had to be offered year after year after year as the Israelites remembered how God had delivered them from slavery and continually asked him to forgive their sins. Jesus Christ was slaughtered once for all. He will never die again. And he has risen from the dead to prove that his sacrifice was acceptable. So if you look to Jesus in faith, you will not have to be enslaved to sin and weighed down by suffering forever. Christ is the true and better Passover lamb. So trust him. Our only hope to be freed from sin and suffering is found in God's grace. It is not found in your career or your influence. It is not found in public policy or politics. It is not found by the winds of cultural change. Our only hope for freedom from sin and suffering is found in the blood of Christ, the true and better Passover lamb, and the resurrection of Christ, the true and better Moses, who ever lives to make intercession for his people. Our only hope is God's grace. So friends, why? keep striving? Why keep worrying? Why not believe that the God who brought his people out of Egypt parted the Red Seas, got water out of a rock? Why not believe that that God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love will continue to be slow to anger rich in mercy, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. We don't have to worry, friends. Our God is a God who saves. And that's good news. So God saves us from sin and suffering, but what does he save us to? What's the happily ever after? that we have to look forward to. Well, God saves a people to dwell with him forever. God is not merely affiliated with his people, like, oh yeah, that's my people, I saved them, my name's on the back of the t-shirt, we're good. No, God is intimately involved with his people. He's graciously working to save a people and then dwell with that people forever. I don't know if you've ever worked somewhere where the manager just kind of sat in his office all day and never was involved in the life of the office or the job site. He just kind of sat there all day long. Not a very good manager. And that is not how our God is. Our God is intimately involved, working to dwell with 
his people. More than a third of the book of Exodus, I did the math, more than a third of the book of Exodus deals with the construction and the operation of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And that's how the story ends, as we just saw in Exodus 40, which we read a few moments ago. Why on earth is so much space given to the construction of this tent in the wilderness? Because it's really important. Because this is God's plan, to dwell with his people. And in the time of the Exodus, this is how he did it. God dwelled with his people in a tent. He gave them specific instructions about how to construct this tent, what it should look like, how to make it a place fit for him to live. And that's, that's what it was. It was a tent in the wilderness. This is God's plan. He doesn't just want to bring them out of Egypt. He wants to dwell with them forever. And so let's look at Exodus 40, verses 34 to 38, and we see this stunning conclusion to the book of Exodus. Verse 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So, so after all of these chapters, chapters 35 to 40, of the Israelites doing what God had commanded them to do, building the tabernacle exactly as God had instructed them to do it, and then it works. They flip the switch, and it works. God graciously dwells with his people. The cloud covers the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. Haven't you felt that kind of satisfaction when you do something at work or at home and it works? Just everything clicks and it works? And that's maybe what the Israelites are feeling. Like they see God descend on the tabernacle in the form of a cloud and it's amazing. It works. All of the, the third of Exodus dealing with and building up to this point reaches this stunning conclusion where God dwells with his people. And, and it's not just God generally described as dwelling with his people, but it says the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, we talk a lot about God's glory, right? We talk a lot about God's glory, meaning his fame and recognition among all of the earth. And that is true. That's what God's glory is. But there's something even more specific going on here in Exodus chapter 40. There's a really unique phrase throughout the Bible, the glory of the Lord. You see it all over the Old Testament, starting in the book of Exodus and spanning throughout the Old Testament. And you see echoes of it in the New Testament as well. We see it throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets like Ezekiel, who talk about the glory of the Lord. And so what do we mean when we say the glory of the Lord? This is a massive topic in our Old Testaments. What does it mean? The glory of the Lord is a visual, physical marker of God's covenant presence and awesomeness. The glory of the Lord is a visual, physical marker of God's covenant presence and awesomeness. So, so we see here in Exodus 40, 34, a cloud descends on the tabernacle. We see a few verses down that there's a pillar of fire rising up from the tabernacle. And that, that cloud and fire is called the glory of 
the Lord. And what is it? It's a visual, physical marker of God's covenant presence and awesomeness. So it's visual. It's meant to be seen. Our God is real. He is not an idea. And he is not distant. He dwells with his people. And in Exodus, they could see it. And we are looking forward to a day when we will see it. It is visual. And it's physical. It's not just a feeling. God really is with them. So it's a visual, physical marker. So, so God himself isn't physical. God is a spirit. He does not have a body. And he is everywhere. And so this is not the specific single location that God is, but rather it's a marker about a specific aspect of who he is and what he's doing. What is it a marker of? It's a marker of his covenant presence. Again, it's not the single place that God is because God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. So it's not a single place that he is, but it's the marker of a special place where he is with his people. So, so think about it. If you, if you were holding a crying baby, just naturally, something that would probably come out of you is, shh, it's okay, baby. I'm here. I'm here. And when you bounce a baby and you say, I'm here, you're not doing that to convey any information that the child doesn't know. I mean, they know that someone is holding them. Someone is bouncing them. You're, you're doing that to communicate something about your relationship with that child. You're saying, I'm for you. I'm protecting you. I've got you and I'm never going to let you go. And when the glory of the Lord descends, it's not a marker of his location. It's a marker of his relationship with his people. It's not a marker of his location. It's a marker of his relationship. He's looking at his people and saying, shh, it's okay. I'm here. I'm here. And it's a marker, not just of his covenant presence, but of his awesomeness. Now, awesome, we throw that word around a lot. But think about it. Awesome. Filled with awe. When we say that something is awesome, when we say that God is awesome, what we're saying is that he is so stunningly beautiful that the only proper response is amazement and awe. Just a fraction of his greatness ought to fill us with amazement because he is astounding in all of his ways and all of his glory and all of his fame and all of his honor. He is astounding. So we ought to be filled with awe. We are so easily pleased in this life. Today, I want to invite you to raise your expectations. To stop living for pithy pleasures on your phone or a passing career and to not settle for anything less than a glimpse of who this God is because your career or any game or any human relationship will never bring you to a real, lasting, forever kind of happily ever after. Don't settle for anything less than knowing this God. 
And maybe some of you here today don't know him. And you don't have this kind of satisfaction. Friends, I want to invite you to know this kind of joy. And Christians, don't settle for a, for a weak Sunday devotion to the Lord because he's awesome. Believe me, God is awesome enough to captivate you throughout the week. He is awesome enough to fill your Mondays and your Tuesdays all the way through your Saturdays. So don't settle for anything less than knowing this great God. And so the story continues, verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's an interesting scene, right? So, so we have all of this climax, and it's amazing, and the glory of the Lord descends, and Moses looks at the tabernacle, and he says, I'm not going in there. The same thing happened later on in the story of the Old Testament when God's people build a temple. And so eventually God leads his people out of the wilderness into the land, the land of Israel, and they build a temple, which is just an expansion of this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, it's a place for the glory of the Lord to dwell, to be a visual, physical marker of God's covenant presence and awesomeness. And when the temple is constructed, the same event happens in 1 Kings chapter 8. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. You see, it's almost a verbatim copy from Exodus chapter 40, where the priests can't get in to do the work that God has called them to. And when I looked at this passage, Exodus chapter 40, my first thought was that Moses couldn't get into the tabernacle because of his sin. And not even Moses is good enough after doing everything exactly according to God's word to construct the tabernacle. Moses isn't even worthy to get into it. And I do think that's part of the picture, but I don't think that's what's primarily in view here. I, I think instead, what's, what's going on is that God is so present that Moses can't get in. Why? Maybe he was physically blocked. Maybe the cloud was so thick that Moses literally couldn't get through the door. Like it's jam-packed with God's presence and God's godness. Maybe Moses was afraid. Maybe he was thinking, that's a really powerful-looking cloud. I don't want to get too close to it. I might get burned. Maybe Moses was prevented. Maybe the light shining from the glory of God was so bright that he couldn't see his way in. The point isn't necessarily... Why or why not Moses couldn't get in? The point is that God is amazing and he really is with his people. It's not an illusion. He is an amazing God who appears to his people as a pillar of fire. He really is awesome. And if you look at his glory, you will be amazed. He's an almighty God. He's a merciful God who dwells among his people in a tent. He really is awesome, and he really is loving. This God is available to you. 
the almighty, merciful God who dwelled among his people in a cloud and in a pillar of fire is available to you. He dwells with his people. He is not a distant, passive manager who sits in an office all day. And he's always with his people. Look at verses 36 to 38. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So notice here, God is guiding his people. So the Israelites were not left to grope around blindly in the wilderness. They weren't left guessing like, oh, where are we supposed to go next? God guided them every step of the way. He's bringing them towards life through his law. He's bringing them towards the land, the promised land through his promise and through his presence. And he's always with his people. There seems to be this sense here that Moses really hammering this point to, point to us throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up. So there's this sense that God's not leaving his people until they get to the land. Throughout all their journeys, whenever. And even it ends with the description of, this is what it looked like by day so that we could see it. And this is what it looked like at night so we could actually see it. Throughout all of their journeys. And so this is the stunning conclusion to the book of Exodus. And it shows us this beautiful happily ever after where God dwells with his people. But it also brings us this tension that they're not home yet. That there's still a lot more of journeys ahead of them because they're not yet in the promised land. And we too are not at the end of our story. But we have an incredibly hopeful happily ever after, to look forward to. One of the last chapters of the Bible in Revelation 21 seems to echo Exodus chapter 40. Look at it with me. Exodus, Revelation 21, 22 to 27. This is John, the apostle, the follower of Christ, describing the new Jerusalem, the city where God's people will live including all of you here today, if you trust in Christ and repent of your sins, we're going to live in a city, the new Jerusalem, with God forever. And it's amazing. And this is how he describes it. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Lamb, that sounds familiar from Exodus, doesn't it? The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because... The glory of God illuminates. That sounds familiar from Exodus, doesn't it? The glory of the Lord that descended on the tabernacle in a cloud and in a fire that lit the Israelites' path before them. That same glory that's a visual, physical marker of God's covenant presence and awesomeness will dwell with us forever in the new Jerusalem. The glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. 
The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. This is good news, not just for Israel, but for every tribe and tongue and nation. For people that look like us, for people that look like Moses, and people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be surrounding this glorious, better tabernacle forever. Verse 25, its gates will never close by day, because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Friends, because of our God and what he has done in Christ, this is the happily ever after that we can look forward to. It's not because we are good enough It's not because we've impressed God enough. No, no, no. God is the one who's impressive. We are not. And so this happily ever after is ours because it was purchased by the perfect life of Christ, by the substitute death of Christ who died in your place, taking the punishment and the exile and the slavery from your sin and purchased by the resurrection of Christ who rose again for your justification. Happily ever after. This is a deep happiness. It is not a cheap thrill. This is a happily ever after that was purchased by Christ's sufferings. And the road to this happily ever after will be filled with our sufferings. This is not a cheap happiness. This is a deep joy. This is a preview happiness that we enjoy right now because we're not yet in the new Jerusalem and we're still surrounded by a lot of sin and suffering in ourselves and in the world around us. But this is also a certain happiness because we know that sin and suffering will one day become a very distant memory and we will dwell with our God forever because of Christ. And this is a massive happiness because the reward is not stuff or sex or success but God himself remember and they all lived happily ever after the important word is they because happily ever afters are tied to a relationship and there is a God who knows you who loves you and who will be with you forever if you are in Christ. So don't settle for a lesser hope. If you're a Christian, you need to discipline yourselves to look forward to this day more than anything else. Some of you might be thinking, I'm not sure if this happily ever after is my happily ever after. Is this the ending that I will look forward to? If you're not trusting in Christ, if you think that you'll get there by being good enough or doing enough or being religious enough, this isn't your happily ever after yet, but it can be. And so if you're not sure if this is your happily ever after, I want to invite you to the back of the room as we sing our final song. As the band, the band can come up now and, and get ready for that. But if you're not sure if this happily ever after is for you, is, if you're not sure if this is the ending of your story, this is what I want you to know. You can be sure today. Not because you're good enough, 
but by trusting in Christ. So come talk to us in the back of the room while we sing our final song. Don't settle for anything less because this glorious God has saved a people for himself and he will dwell with them forever. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your word and your holiness and your awesomeness. God, I pray that you would be made magnificent before us, that we would be astounded at who you are and at what you've done. God, you are so good and so kind to us. You are merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God, would you, would you help us to remember that that is our hope? That we'll never be good enough, but you are gracious enough. That the suffering will never be small enough for us to climb there, but you are kind enough and merciful enough. God, you are our only hope. So I pray, God, that you would draw people to yourself to enter into this story, to find this happily ever after as their own. And I pray that you would build up all of us to look forward to this day more than we look forward to anything else because this is our hope. And to him who is able to do far more than all that we would ask or imagine for his name's sake, it's in that name that we pray. Amen.